when Fezzik asked Wesley, why do you wear a mask? Were you burned by acid or something? And Mary says, oh, no, they're terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. Only he knew. Good morning, guys. It's good to see you. Um, for those of you guys who may be watching online, um, we are going to uh, share in communion this morning. So if you want to, gather your elements. You can gather your um, wine and unleavened bread or, um, or your Hawaiian punch and rich crackers or, as someone mentioned this morning, a Coke and a French fry will work fine too. Uh, whatever. Um, let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're so grateful that we can gather together and worship you, Lord. We're grateful that even though we're not all here, that, that, that we can be here, Lord, and we can fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray for those who, who aren't with us yet, who either are ill or immune compromised or don't feel comfortable yet, that you'll be with them as well, Lord. And you'll minister to their spirits, that they will just be strengthened and encouraged. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, um, we'll be looking at a, a passage that seems especially timely. You know, I mentioned before that we, I kind of planned it out so that we would land on, um, on the resurrection of Jesus in John on Resurrection Sunday. And then we moved on and we finished up John and moved into Acts. And as it happened, we landed on the passage concerning Pentecost on Pentecost Sunday. And now, as we are moving into Acts 4, again, it's a very timely passage. It kind of deals with a lot of the stuff that we're going through today. It talks about dealing with, you know, standing up for the Lord and dealing with opposition from, from authorities and how to deal with those things and how should the, the church respond to edicts and rules and legislation that goes against the, the clear teaching of Scripture. Now remember, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they, they went into the temple and... Um, and they were on their way to worship the Lord. And as they entered the gate called Beautiful, remember they see this guy who, who had been crippled since, since birth. And he's there, he's, you know, he's got his little, I know he's got a guitar and a cup out or something, whatever. He's, he's begging for money. He's trying, to, he's trying to get some money, asking for alms. And remember Peter and John, they make eye contact with him. And they... And, and they walk over, and the guy's excited about it. And, and, and Peter says, sorry, friend, I don't, we don't have any money. Peter, silver and gold, have I none? He says, but what I have, I give unto thee. Arise and walk. And remember, Peter, he grabs the guy by the hand, and he, and he pulls him to his feet. And we see this man, he's, he's healed. His deformed feet are made whole. And we find him in the next couple verses, says that he's leaping around and he's, and he's praising the Lord. And before long, a group of people gathered around and, and they're amazed because they knew this guy. And, and they said, what happened? You know, how did he get healed? Right? And there's no, 
arguing with a healing, right? There's no arguing with this kind of a transformation. You know, people can argue a lot of things. They can argue theology or, or philosophy. They can argue the inspiration of Scripture. But it, it's hard to argue with a changed life. It's hard to argue with somebody who says, look, I was blind, but now I see. I was lame, but now I can walk. And so Peter sees all the people gathering around, and he, and he recognizes that this is his moment. And he stands up and he begins to preach. And remember he says, why are you guys looking at me? As if it's through my own godliness that, that this man was healed. Why are you looking at us as though we did something spectacular? He says, it wasn't me, it wasn't us. Remember that guy Jesus? That guy whom you nailed to the cross? That guy whom you insisted on crucifying? He is the one who healed this man. And this is where we pick up the text. It's the same scene here in the temple. Peter is standing up. He's still addressing the people. He's sort of mid-sermon, and he gets interrupted. And so uh, we pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came to about 5,000. So Peter, he's standing up here. He's finishing his sermon to these people, and he's sort of wrapping things up, and all of a sudden the priests show up. And they have their... They have their temple security with them, right? They have the, it's the secret service. You know, they're, uh, you know, the eagles left the building, right? And they're, they're, they're doing all of their, their security stuff. And, and the Sadducees are there with them. And something to note is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, <coughs> historically, they didn't get along at all. They were definitely at opposing sides of the, of the spectrum. In fact, the only time that we see them getting along and working together was working towards the crucifixion of Jesus. The Pharisees were very conservative when it came to the, to the word of God, when it came to the law. They believed that, that every word, that every letter, that every jot and tittle were, were inspired by God. They were definitely you know, what we would call fundamentalists. And the Sadducees were fairly liberal. They believed some of the Bible, but they didn't really believe in an afterlife. They didn't really believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in a, in a, in a literal resurrection of the dead. Remember, the Pharisees, they were opposed to Jesus for his, for his supposed breaking of the Jewish law for his healing on the Sabbath and those things that he did. The Sadducees, they didn't care so much about that. They didn't like the miracles. They didn't like the supernatural. They didn't like it that the apostles were talking about Jesus having risen from the dead. But as we see, they couldn't deny it. Right? Everybody had seen it. They'd witnessed it. If the Sadducees and the religious leaders could have, they would have proven that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, right? They would have, they would have rolled old Jesus' body out on a cart. 
said, look, here he is. They said, look, you, you say that this Jesus character rose from the dead. Well, here's his body. Right, this whole thing has been a sham. You guys have been, you guys have been bamboozled by these, by these charlatans, by these fakes, by these frauds. This, this whole resurrection thing is a sleight of hand. They would have, but they couldn't. There was no body. The, the, the grave was empty. Jesus rose from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And at this time, most of the priests were Sadducees. Most of the priests didn't believe in the resurrection. And they didn't like it that people were listening to the apostles. They didn't like it that people were putting their faith in a resurrected Jesus. And so while Peter is preaching, the priests, the Sadducees, and their muscle, the, the temple guard, the security forces, they kind of weave their way through the crowd. And it says in verse 3, that they arrested Peter and John and took them into custody. And it says that it was evening, so they put them in jail overnight until they could look at the issue the next morning. And, and they're probably thinking that that was going to be the end of it. They would kind of, that they would uh, scare Peter and John straight, right? That they would put an end to all this Jesus foolishness. But the Lord was at work. And the Holy Spirit was, was moving among his people. The Lord had a divine, sovereign plan of salvation already set in motion. And nothing that, that the religious leaders wanted to do could stop that work of the Holy Spirit from being accomplished. And look at what it says in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The NLT says this, the number of people who heard their message believed it. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So look at this. Peter, he didn't even get to finish his message. He didn't even get to the altar call. He didn't even get to give that emotional plea while the worship leader softly strummed the guitar. Right? He didn't get to say, you know, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just slip your hand into the... None of that happened. But the Holy Spirit was at work. And he was speaking into the hearts of the people. And many of the people heard it. And they received the message with great joy. And the church makes this huge jump. Right? We know that before this, there were about 3,000 people. But Luke notes here that there were 5,000 male adult believers. And the word that he uses in the Greek is very clear on that. So including the women and the kids, there's probably somewhere around 20,000 believers in the church right now. And so the church saw this, this explosive growth from 120 to maybe 20,000 in, in just a few days or a couple of weeks. And that growth, that, that revolution hasn't stopped in 2,000 years. Jesus continues to change lives. He continues to set people free. He continues to deliver people from the bondage of sin. And we see here that this is a, this is a mighty work of God. And there isn't anything 
that, that man can do to stop it. Right? There's nothing that men can do to stop the work of God. You know, and, and, and they try. Men, governments throughout history have tried to, to stop our faith. They've tried to stomp out our faith. But what happens? Every time that, that people try to exterminate our faith, it grows bigger. Right? It's like, it's like trying to put out a fire with kerosene. It doesn't work. It only makes it bigger. Yeah, and we see that in modern times. You look in China, places where it's illegal to, to practice our Christian faith, where you might go to prison, you might lose your job, you might die. The underground church there is, it, it's exploding, and there are literally hundreds of millions of believers there. Look at Africa and some of the extreme persecution, and that church continues to, to flourish there. In the Middle East, particularly in Iran, there are reports of, of revival sweeping through the land. And it's reported that Iran is the fastest growing church in the world right now. It's reported that, that millions of people have come to faith in Iran under, under severe persecution. And here's what happens. When you are a believer in those kind of situations... You know, you're serious about your faith. You, you're, you're not lukewarm and, and half-hearted when you know that your life is on the line. You're not going to be doing this thing halfway if you know that it could cost you your life. Right? In those kind of situations, it forces people to be all in. And persecution, historically, has always caused the church to grow. In biblical times... Throughout church history and in modern times, we see the same thing played out over and over again. The enemies of God try to stomp out the church, and it just causes it to grow. Conversely, what's the best way to stop the church? Seems like historically it's just to let it be. To do nothing, to not oppose it. You know, when, when the church is left to its own devices, inevitably, it starts to, we start to fight among ourselves. And we divide over ridiculous things, like should we, should we dunk or sprinkle to be baptized? You know, just all these, all these crazy things. And we start to get so inward focused. And we grow lukewarm and complacent and, and half-hearted in our faith. But the truth is, it's pressure from the enemy, it's pressure from the world that so often is a, is a catalyst for growth in the church. You know, today in, in the West, there's not really a lot of pressure. There's not a lot of fire to, to refine and purify. And I think that we, we see the results of that. We see the fruit of that in the church. But where there's persecution and where there's opposition... It forces the body of Christ to rely on the Lord. It, it drives us into the arms of the Lord. And we're going to see that idea unfold throughout the book of Acts. Moving on to verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. 
with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, that's Peter and John, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So the next day, Peter and John, right, they just spent the night in the pokey, right? They were just in jail. They're in the Huskow. And they get brought out. And, 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 and they're brought before the leaders. And it says that Annas was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all the members of the high priestly family. These are all the people that worked to condemn Jesus. The same group of people that, that put Jesus to death are now questioning John and Peter. Probably trying to intimidate them a little bit. Look, this is what we did to Jesus and if you don't shape up, this is what's going to happen to you. Right, so they bring in these guys, these, these rabble-rousers, these provocateurs, and they, and, and they demand, in verse 7, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Basically, they're saying, how did you do this? How did you heal this guy? And, and who told you to do it? And what authority do you have to stand in opposition to us? We're the leaders. You know, what's, what's going on here, guys? What's the story? In verse 8, it says, And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to stop there for a second, guys. We see this phrase over and over again in Acts. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have to know this. We have to understand this. It is essential. It is an absolute necessity in the life of a believer. If we as believers want to do anything for the kingdom of God, if we want to do anything of eternal value, if we want to do anything that's going to make an eternal impact, it has to be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's where the power comes from. Someone once used this analogy. They said that the, the Holy Spirit is the, is the fuel that, that drives the vehicle. Right? If the church were a bus, the Holy Spirit would be the gas that powers it. The Holy Spirit would be the gas that gives it the ability to move forward. And without it, the bus might be able to coast downhill a little bit. Right? Without fuel, people might be able to get out of the bus and, and push it for a little ways. They might be able to get it to roll down the street a little bit. But in order for the bus to get anywhere meaningful, it has to have fuel. And, and the church is the same way. We might be able to get behind a program, and we might be able to work really hard, and we might be able to, to, to push with all of our might, and we might be able to, to get that program to move a little bit. But nothing meaningful will be accomplished without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Let me emphasize that again. Nothing meaningful can be accomplished without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, and look at his attitude there. He was respectful towards the leaders as he's responding to them. But he says, look, 
you've detained us, and you want to question us about how this guy was healed, Peter says, good. I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Let me explain what happened. He says in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter here, he doesn't hold anything back. All right, these are the guys that executed Jesus, and now they have Peter and John on trial. And this is Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, the one who denied Jesus to a little girl. This is Jesus the traitor. This is Jesus, uh, Peter the traitor. This is Peter the coward. This is, this is Peter the, the betrayer. But this is Peter who was totally transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This, this Peter is an, an utterly new man. He's a new creation. And Peter here, he's, he's really letting him have it. He says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of whom you crucified. Now, I have to wonder, as Peter's up here preaching, what was John doing? What was John thinking as he's standing beside Peter? Was he, was he nodding his head in agreement? Was he kind of, shh. Right? Was he was he thinking, don't, don't drag me down with you, Peter? Right? This is another one of those scenes that, that's going to be cool to see on the instant replay. But Peter says this. Let me clearly state this for you guys. Make no mistake about it. The one that you crucified and the one who came back from the dead. Right? Peter here, he's not worried about offending anyone. Yeah, he, he's boldly, bravely proclaiming the name of Jesus here. He says, it was Jesus. And he says in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, we read that, and we don't really understand what Peter's saying. You know, we don't, we don't get the story. But this would have meant everything to the Jewish audience. Back Back when the temple was being built, back when Solomon's temple was being built, centuries before the birth of Christ, right, there was a, um, there was a stone quarry that they would cut the stones for the temple mountain for the temple. And it was quite a distance away from the temple, and, and they, would, they would haul these, these bricks that were sometimes 10, 20, 30 feet long that weighed up to 80 tons. And they would move them to the temple, and they would kind of, put them together like a giant puzzle, right? And each stone was, was labeled. And it said that there wasn't the sound of a, a hammer or a saw at the temple. It was all done at a distance. And so one day this, this huge stone shows up, and it's, it's unlabeled. And so no one could figure out what this stone was. 
or, 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 or where it was supposed to go. And eventually the foreman, he took the rock and he, and he rolled it over the edge of the Temple Mount down into a place called Gehenna, into the dump. And, um, and this place, Gehenna, it was well known because it was a place that was, that was always on fire. The whole city, they threw their refuse in there and it was continually just smoldering and burning. And so a couple of years later, as they're getting ready to finish up the temple, they needed that, that cornerstone. They needed that main piece, that, that crown, that cap to finish it off. And so the foreman in the job site sends word to the foreman in the quarry and he says, hey, we, we need the cornerstone. And the foreman in the quarry says, I, I, I sent it a long time ago. I, I sent it years ago. And as, as tradition tells us, you know, there's this argument that ensued between these two foremen. And one of the workers says, hey, remember, remember a couple of years back when that giant unmarked stone arrived and we didn't know what it was? Remember we rejected it and we, and we rolled it down into Gehenna? And sure enough, that was the stone that they were looking for. The stone that the builder rejected was the chief cornerstone. It was the main stone for the temple. And this is a story that, that every Jew in Peter's day would have, would have known. They would have been familiar with it. Certainly the, the priests were aware of it. And so Peter says, remember that? Remember Psalm 118.22 when David said that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Jesus came, Peter said. And, you know, the Messiah arrived, but he wasn't labeled like you thought he would be. He didn't look like you, you thought that he should look. He arrived, but you didn't recognize him for who he was. And so you rejected him. You threw him out. You tossed him into Gehenna. And, and at that time, Gehenna... While it referred to that garbage dump, it was sort of a, a euphemism for hell. And Jesus actually referred to hell in, in, in the Greek at least 11 times by this name, Gehenna. And so Peter says, you rejected Jesus. But guess what? He ended up being the, the chief cornerstone, the very thing that our, that our whole faith rests on. Peter says, look, the whole of Judaism, the whole of Scripture rested on Jesus, and you missed it. And then in verse 12, he gives one of the boldest statements in Scripture. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter says there is salvation and no one but Jesus. And we've talked about this recently, I know. But there are some people, some believers even, that, that think that, you know, it doesn't matter what religion you are. You can be a Christian. You can be a Mormon. You can be a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or Baha'i. It doesn't matter. As long as you're sincere. As long as you're a good person. And you know, that's a, that's a nice sentiment. You know, it seems so loving 
and accepting, and it seems so tolerant. It's a very nice sentiment, but it's just not true. It's not what Scripture teaches. Peter the Apostle here, he says, listen, there is salvation in no one else. Muhammad can't save you. Moroni can't save you. Buddha can't save you. Trump can't save you. Biden can't save you. Political systems or parties can't save you. Philosophies can't save you. No one but Jesus can save you. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Peter says. God has made one way to get to heaven. There's no other way, Peter says. There's one way to be saved. There's one way to be delivered from sin, and it's Jesus Christ. And you know, I know we quote John 14, 6 a lot because it, it brings so much clarity to it. Right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's, that's very exclusive. There's no other religion. There's no other faith system. Right? If you want to go to heaven, if you want to be delivered from your sin, if you want to be set free, if you want access to the Father, Jesus is the only way. Peter says, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. He says, it's Jesus or nothing. And we, we proclaim that as believers, and people say, oh, you're, 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 you're so judgmental. Yeah, I, I, I preach that, and people say, you know, how do you have the authority to say that, pastor? Well, I don't, and I'm not. I'm not saying anything. I'm just repeating what God said, right? And, and he has the authority to say that. And then people say, you know, well, that's just, that's just your interpretation, Really? Did you, did you read it? Is there any other way that that can be interpreted? You know, if you can say that the Bible is wrong. You can say that Peter is wrong. But you can't say that he isn't saying that Jesus is the only way. Because it's very clear. He's proclaiming the exclusivity of Jesus and the exclusivity of the gospel. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So the leaders, the Sanhedrin, the priests, they're amazed. They said, who are these guys? Look how, look how bold they are. Look at, the, look at they, how confident they are. Look at the authority they possess. Look how well they know the scripture. Right? They said, look, these are just ordinary guys. They've had no special training in the scriptures. They didn't go to Bible college. They didn't go to seminary. They weren't experts. But they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And I want you to see that, church. 
that these were average guys. They were fishermen. They were just blue-collar guys. They weren't scholars. But the Sanhedrin recognized that they had been with Jesus. And and I want every one of you to, to take note of that. I want every one of you to let that sink into your hearts. Make a little note card if you have to. Write it on your mirror and lipstick. Do something so you can remember that. That they had been with Jesus. God is calling some of you to ministry. He's calling you to do great things for His name. And you might say, you know, I I would like to, but I don't have the training. I would like to, but but I don't have the education. I would like to, but I don't. You kind of fill in the blank. Neither did Peter or John. But they had been with Jesus. The same Jesus that we know. They had the same Holy Spirit residing with them that we have residing within us. And listen, I get the importance of education. Right? If you're going to be a doctor, I hope you go to medical school and, and before you start cutting me open and working on me, I hope you do really good in medical school and you pass all your tests, right? I hope you study hard. Um, if you're going to be a lawyer or a teacher or an engineer, you need to study and be equipped for those things. You know, when I was in Belize, I, I um, did online courses and I got my bachelor's degree. I have a, I have a bachelor's of arts and religion. And you know what? It doesn't really do me any good in the ministry. You know, it's, it, 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 that's not what qualifies me. And, and I, you know, growing up, I changed schools tons of times. I got kicked out of high school twice. I ended up being a construction worker. You know, when people looked at me, I wasn't on anybody's list to be a pastor. Right? No one ever looked at me and said, you see that? See that punk rock kid over there? I bet you he would make a great pastor. You see that guy over there? See that fool over there? I'd like to see him in charge of a church. The only time anybody ever said that is if they were making a joke. Right? Nobody said that except the Lord. And that's what I love about the Lord. And that's what I love about our movement, about Calvary Chapel churches. Right? There's... So many pastors that, that nobody would pick to pastor churches, right? There's so many pastors that aren't, would, would never be the world's choices. Ex-gang members and ex-drug dealers, ex-criminals, soldiers, construction workers, mechanics, fishermen, right? Just a, a, a bunch of average guys. But guys who loved the Lord wanted to serve him. And the Lord took them. And transform them and uses them to pastor churches. Men with with no formal Bible training, many of them. But they had been with Jesus. Now listen, education is wonderful. I went to Bible college and I loved it. But it's not a requirement to serve the Lord. A willing heart and a love for Jesus 
is what's required to serve the Lord. Verse 16. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. The religious leaders say, what are we going to do with these guys? They say, everyone sees that they perform this miracle. We can't deny that. We can't deny that, that the miraculous has happened. But we don't want their message to spread. And think about this for a moment. Think about the hearts of these religious leaders, these men of God. They, they saw the miracle. They knew it was true. They, they said, look, we can't deny it. They didn't even bother trying to deny it. But instead of recognizing it as an act of God and trying to understand it, what do they want to do? They want to cover it up. They want to sweep it under the rug. Because they didn't want people believing in Jesus because it would pull people away from, from their power base. And that's sad, isn't it? Man, I think it's almost impossible to overestimate how hard their hearts were at this point that they were willing to deny this miracle to try to maintain their little status quo. And so verse 18, they, they call the apostles in and command them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. And so at this point, Peter and John could have just walked away. They could have said, yes, sir, sorry, sir, and been on their way. But, verse 19, Peter and John answered them. This is what I love about Peter. Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what, we cannot speak, we cannot but speak of what we have heard and seen. The NLT says this. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? Peter says, listen, guys, I hear what you're saying, but what do you think God wants? Should we obey you or should we obey God? Because we can't do both. And by the way, this, this thought popped into my mind during first service, and it wasn't something in my notes or anything, but I think we need to be very careful that we don't position ourselves in such a way that people have to choose between us or God. As parents, as, as children, as husbands and wives, as employees, as employers, whatever the case, we never need to create positions where people say, okay, do I want to please him and obey him, or do I want to please God and obey God? We should always do our best that people can please God and us at the same time, right? Make sure that our desires and our will are so close to his desires and his will that people don't have to 
choose betwixt one and the other. Peter says, should we obey God or should we obey you? And essentially, what Peter's talking about here is, is civil disobedience. Right? Refusing to obey a law because it violates your conscience. Now, we all understand, I think, that as Christians, we're called to obey the law. That we're called to keep the law of the land. And I think Romans 13 is, is pretty clear on that. But sometimes the law is at odds with our faith. And in those occasions, we need to break the law of man in order to keep the law of God. You know, if there's a law passed that says you're not allowed to own a Bible, you can break that law. If there's a law passed that says that you're not allowed to evangelize and share your faith, feel free to break that law. If there's a law passed that you're not allowed to pray, break it. Right? And you may end up like Daniel, thrown in the lion's den. Nonetheless, keep your conscience clear. If there's a law passed that says you're not allowed to worship Jesus, you're allowed to break that law. God's law is higher than any court of man. And this is something that I think most evangelical pastors have had to think through recently. In light of, you know, churches being forced to close. And, you know, something that, that I definitely have thought through, and my little group of pastor friends that I hang out with, we've talked about this quite a bit. You know, and it's one thing if the government issues a blanket statement, you know, that, that everybody has to close. That churches, schools, businesses, everybody has to close. You know, we might not agree with the rules. We might not like it. But if everybody is kind of subject to the same thing and it's not persecution against the church, we need to do our best within reason to comply. But when we start seeing protests not only being allowed, but encouraged, other large gatherings being permitted, but churches told that they have to stay closed, I think that's the point when we have to give some deep consideration as to what the Lord would have us do. You guys have probably heard in the news, California issued a law that says that you're not allowed to worship in church. You can't sing in church. I don't know, but I feel like that might be getting close to the line where we might have to engage in civil disobedience, like Peter says. We might have to obey the Lord rather than man. Now, I personally, this isn't scripture, it's not prophecy, it's not a word from the Lord, just to be clear, this is my opinion. But I am of the opinion that we, as a culture, as a society, are headed in a direction that more and more restrictions are going to be put on the church until we arrive at a point where we can no longer worship freely. 
And I've talked about this before. So many people say, well, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. That could never happen. And, you know, people felt the same way in Russia and China and Cuba and Venezuela and all these other countries until it happened. I mean, there's a whole list, a whole litany of countries that we could go on. There's going to be a time when we can no longer keep the laws of man and the laws of God at the same time. There is going to be a time when we're going to have to say the same thing as Peter. Should we obey God or man? And when that time comes, they've already put me on a train. I'll already be gone. You know, each one of us have to come to a place before we get there that we've already purposed in our hearts that we're going to serve God and obey God no matter what. Peter says, look, we can't stop. We can't stop telling people about the things that we have seen and heard. We won't be stopped from proclaiming the name of Jesus. I Yesterday, the day before, I, I saw this video. Um, it was uh, um, a pastor, and, and he was talking about the, the shifting nature of the church and the shifting nature of ministry. And he was talking about how we need to, to focus less on, on in-person meetings and focus more on, on online services because that's what people are going to engage in in the future. He's talking about how people aren't going to want to go to church anymore. And if we want to reach people, we need, to, we need to be more active online and less focus on in-person stuff. And, you know, I was watching that, and he made some valid points, but the whole thing, it just, it didn't sit well with me. Because, you know, this is the church. Not, not this, but this, right? Us. We, we are the church. Us gathering together, worshiping, and, and proclaiming his death and burial and resurrection until he returns. That's what the church is. And we, and we, we miss that online. And don't get me wrong, I'm very grateful that we were able to meet online when, when we weren't able to meet in person. I'm very grateful that we can still meet online for those who are, who are sick or who don't feel comfortable coming back to church yet. I, I'm, I'm very grateful for those things, but, but that's not a long-term solution for the church. We need to be gathered together. We can't forsake the fellowship of the saints. We need each other as the body of Christ. Verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. And for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So this is a kind of a, a sad ending to this story. This man is healed after 40 years of suffering. 
and thousands of people are, are praising God and rejoicing for the goodness of God. And instead of the priests, the, the men of God, the people of God rejoicing, instead of them praising God, the priests are trying to cover it up and hide it. They're trying to, to stop it from going forth. They're, they're issuing threats. I think sometimes we, we can miss what the Lord is doing. We can be so hard-hearted to the things that the Lord is doing around us and in the lives of the people around us, you know, and, we, and we miss what He is doing. Sometimes we as the people of God get so, so locked in. We get so focused on our, on our systems and on our church programs and on our traditions that we fail to see the movement and the shift of the Holy Spirit. And we fail to see what He wants us to do. I think a big lesson for us as believers here is that we need to be sensitive to what the Lord is doing. And we need to be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. We, um, we're going to close in just a moment and we're going to share in communion together. And um, if you guys don't have your little communion packets, there's some out in the lobby there. But um, before we do that, before we share in communion together, encourage you guys just to take a couple minutes as we as we sing this song just to reflect on the lord and just make sure that you are where you should be and that you're right with the lord and then we'll um we'll share in the elements together